But the big is where we gather corporately. This is where we gather as a big family. This is where we connect new people usually to our church. This is where people come and discover what Urban Grace is about, what Jesus is about, what is the mission that he has called us to, and you, you figure that out. But we think that if this is the only part of Urban Grace that you experience, that you are missing well over half of what we're about. We're also about the small. We call the small city groups. That's where we gather weekly. Uh, we eat together. We learn about God's word together. We take what we've learned on Sunday and we, we process it together. And we help each other understand what's going on in our hearts and with the gospel. That's where we pray together. We don't have a prayer meeting because we want our city groups to pray together. They also, these city groups, some of them like uh, are better than others, but we, we also, these are the places that we serve together. So rather than try and serve our city as one big group, we're choosing to do it in a small way. And these small ways are often way more mobile than a large church. Can you imagine trying to get you all serving on one night? I mean, how many of you have that schedule problem in all other areas of your life, right? You try to get four people together. It's like, well, I'm, I can't. I've got softball or, you know, softball. I've got hockey or whatever it is. Um, and so these city groups are small mobile units that really can serve and bless the city. We think in a much more effective way than if we try to make a program here. So we're not high on programs here. We're really low on programs here uh, because of that. But you'll find that these city groups uh, really um, are, are like miniature versions of this church without a lot of the distractions that go on in the church. And so if you'd like to get connected to one of those, if you'd like to join a part of that community, uh, fill out one of these connect cards and just check that box. I would like to join a city group and then we'll try and connect you to uh, our online kind of Facebook-ish page. It's ish because it's a little more complicated than Facebook, but actually um, in some ways better suited towards church purposes. We'll get you connected onto the city and that will allow you to, to find out what's going on with your city group and the rest of what's going on in the church. Also, if today is your first Sunday, and really you're very new to the Jesus thing. You've, you've heard of church before. You're obviously here because... Um, you're not that scared of church, but really figuring out how this Jesus thing works. You'd like to know information or you'd like to talk to somebody about this and, and, to, and figure this out. There's a box there for you and uh, someone will get a hold of you and talk to you about Jesus and how that works in your life and what he can do for you and, and how great he really is. So that's a way to connect to our church. Um, also, you should have received one of these. Uh, these cards have been made up by a very wonderful graphic designer and will help you to pray through and to plan for uh, the future in our series. We're in what I think is one of the greatest series uh, that we could have as a church plant. Um, you'll see even our decorations are there. We stole some decorations from last series, which was about the gospel. And let me just state this as we begin this morning. The gospel really is, is the good news about Jesus Christ, that we feel that this news is so important that we've got to repeat it, first of all, all the time. And secondly, we've got to incorporate it into everything else that we learn. We want to love and serve and bless this city within our city groups and in every way possible, but we feel as though if we don't bring the gospel to our city, we're not really helping our city in the way the church is designed to help our city. 
There are lots of organizations out there that are great and that you should be involved in that really make this city a better place. You know, did you know that there's a, I think it's something about three things for Calgary? Were you telling me about this, hun? What is it called again? Three things you can do for Calgary. Okay, I remembered it right. Where it's like, what three things can you do to make Calgary a better place? So there are other people in our city that don't necessarily love Jesus that are trying to make this city a better city. And we applaud that. We think that's awesome. But as the church, we have been given what we are told is the best news of all time. That's what the word gospel means. The word gospel means good news to all people at all times, no matter who you are. And this is the good news, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate Savior, that he came, he died on a Roman cross. He paid the penalty of death for your and my sins so that we might not just have salvation through Jesus Christ, but we may also be given a mission for Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that mission side, but we do not want to assume that you know everything there is to know about the gospel. So again, if that is a question for you and you'd like to know more about that, you can. some of the messages from the fall, we went through this whole series on gospel and we really went after this thing month after month. Um, but now that we've, as a church at least, kind of discovered the gospel, we want to know what kind of things we can do with the gospel. And really, although the gospel has been described that simple, the gospel is also in many ways multifaceted and has this amazing ability to apply to all situations and and redeem all situations. And so I want you to uh, plan for that. I want you to think through your involvement. And we're going to be asking you to do a lot of things because we feel like the gospel does that. So today... We're going to talk about repentance. I know all of you got up, well, at least some of you got up and said, yeah, probably my favorite topic of all time, repentance. How seeker sensitive is that? It's super seeker sensitive. And you'll find out why in a bit. But let's pray. Um, This is an issue that obviously we need the power of the Holy Spirit to know and understand properly. It's just going to sound like a bunch of garbage to you. So let's, let's pray this morning. Jesus, we thank you for your good news. We thank you that you have chosen not to live a comfortable life in heaven, but that you actually came to this earth, not merely to save us, but to also give us mission and purpose, that we may join in in what you're doing, Jesus. This is an amazing thing that you just, you weren't just single-minded in your planning of the gospel, that you made it so that it included all of us. And there are some even here this morning that are not yet part of the mission, Jesus. And we ask that that you continue to help this city become a city that loves Jesus. That this city would become a city what it's known for its churches that love Jesus and follow Jesus and are willing to lay their lives down in a similar way that you, Jesus, laid your life down for us. We pray, Jesus, that you would open our eyes to this scripture in Nehemiah. This is 2,500-year-old scripture, Jesus, that you said was alive and living and active and was sharp like a sword that could cut into our souls. And so, Jesus, only the power of your Spirit will do this. No amount of historical recollection will, will help make this text alive. Only the power of your Spirit, Jesus. And so we pray that you... 
you in your spirit come upon us that we may understand and know the text today. But that this text is not just words on a page, but this text is alive in our hearts, Jesus. We would ask for this for your glory and the power of your risen and holy son. Amen. Amen. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Nehemiah. We're in this series. We call it Magna Civitus. Uh, someone texted me this week and called it Magnus Civitus, which isn't quite <laughs> exactly what it is. Um, I think that means like uh, big people or something like that. Um, but Magna Civitus or Civitus Magna is really a Latin phrase that has been used on occasion in part or uh, in whole uh, for this great city. And, and really this whole chapter, uh, sorry, this whole book of Nehemiah is about how God has been developing and keying in on Jerusalem, which he wants to be a great city. Now you say, why did God select a specific city? Well, actually, he doesn't just select this city, although in Israel, this is what happens throughout the Old Testament. We see these types of what God is going to do. And so ultimately, while God is working in Israel and building up a great city, in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, he describes ultimately heaven as being a new city. Did you know that God describes heaven, when he describes heaven, he says, a new Jerusalem will come out of the clouds. A new Jerusalem will come down. And this Jerusalem will be much better than the old Jerusalem. And this Jerusalem will not have the kind of smallness to it. It will not have the crime or corruption to it. It won't have any of those things. In fact, this city will be so big, so green, so fun, so wide, that everyone will enjoy great life. That's how God describes it. So this idea of building a city is not really just about building a city. This idea of building a city in Nehemiah is really about building God's people. And actually, physically, this happens in chapters 1 to 6. And then there's a spiritual side in which Nehemiah says, okay, now that you physically have rebuilt this city, now we want to spiritually pay attention to what God is doing and rebuild your lives. Because this is what has happened. God's people had disobeyed him for a number of years. He warned them through prophets. He said, 70 years are going to come if you don't pay attention. Seventy years will come and you will face my disciplinary action. Not my hatred, my discipline towards you. You guys know the difference, right? You know, some of us feel like when God does some things or He allows some things in our life, we feel like it's it's God's hatred. Actually, God says He disciplines those that He loves. And again, if you've ever been into a restaurant or Walmart or superstore, where you've seen undisciplined children, one of the first thoughts you think is, what's wrong with those parents? Is that not right? You think, why can't those parents love those children enough to tell them you're not allowed to scream at the top of your lungs in a store? None of you are laughing, either because you don't have kids or you're now feeling convicted about your parenting skills. We have this all the time. First thought that goes through my head is, are people going to think I don't care about disciplining my kids? And in many ways, to not discipline your children is actually to not love them. It's not loving to do so. Some of us have got this idea mixed up that we feel like to love someone is to not discipline. That's not it at all. 
And so God, being the loving God that he was, disciplined his people because he warned them and said, if you don't pay attention, I will discipline you. And it won't be a small discipline. It'll be like 70 years. And so that's actually what happened. And for 70 years, uh, God's people spent their lives essentially in Babylon. And once that 70-year period was up, God told them they could return to Jerusalem. And so they did. But when they returned, they really... They really kind of came outside of the city and they scattered. Honestly, it was a lot like suburban life. This is not a knock against suburban life, but this is actually what happened. Because the city was where the ruins were. The city was where the danger was. The city, there wasn't really any protection inside the city, close by the temple. And so the people just kind of developed their rural lives. And Nehemiah was in the process of being called by God to rebuild the walls so that there was... Some, some way to protect what was going on in the city. The, the temple had already been rebuilt, and the, there had been an attempt on the walls to, be, to have them rebuilt, but uh, this attempt faced some opposition. And what often happens is if you don't have courage or calling, when you f- face opposition, you'll just crumble, right? This happens in our lives all the time. You really want to do something, and then you think you really want to do something, but then there's some opposition, and you find out you don't really want to do something. Right? You know you, you know you are called to something when you face all kind of opposition. You go, I don't care who comes against me. We're going to get this thing done. And that's exactly how Nehemiah talked. And what happened was, is he heard this news about, he's about 141 years after the 70 year discipline began, and he hears this news and something in his heart breaks. I believe that Nehemiah received from God the heart of Jesus. And that his heart just was crushed. It became so broken that his city was in shambles because, again, metaphorically, the city of Jerusalem represents the work, the active work of God in the world. And so if you see, if you say, well, what's the pinnacle of what we do? And and we said, well, our, our church service is the pinnacle of what we did. And you came in and there was nothing here. There was no speakers. People were like, playing video games all over the place. There's popcorn everywhere. Bibles were ripped in half. Some of you go, this place is a disaster. This is the pinnacle of what God's doing among you? You might be crushed too. And so actually, this is what happens. Is Nehemiah feels this weight of this brokenness, and he says, I've got to do something about this. But before we get too hasty about that, let's read our text. Because before Nehemiah does anything, he really listens to God. And he pays attention to what is always at the beginning of any revival. And that is repentance. Listen to Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. If you don't have a Bible this morning, would you just put up your hand and an usher will come and bring you a Bible. And if if that's your first Bible that you have ever touched in the last two years, maybe take it home with you as a gift so that you have God's word with you. So anyone who needs a Bible, just put up your hand, and one of the ushers will grab one for you. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. I don't even know what page it would be on for you, but it's Nehemiah's left of the Psalms. This is what it says, and starting in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, 
the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of, your, a people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. As I said today, this, this is really all about repentance. And repentance is a big part of prayer. And the first thing that happens to Nehemiah is, um, as his heart is broken for the city and as he wants to see the city of God rebuilt, as he wants to see God's presence rebuilt in the world, really the first thing that Nehemiah does after his heart is broken is he repents. Now, this is a weird word for us if we're not used to it. If we haven't been in church or we don't know what's going on, uh, repent is, is, a, is a word that somehow describes a change of direction. Some of us think that this word repent simply means to ask for forgiveness. No, it doesn't. That's why the Bible doesn't use the word ask for forgiveness. It uses the word repent, which really, if you can think physically, this is what's supposed to happen in, in repent. When you repent, you change direction. So if you're going this way and you repent, like let's say you were going on a hike and you repented on your hike in terms of the physical activity. This is what you would do. You would, if you were going this direction, you would turn around and go this direction. Okay, there was a physical kind of, this is a physical description of what actually happens. And repentance is a word that I don't think is used or clarified very well in the church today. Because we think it's simply saying, I'm sorry. Now, who, who has children? Who was a child? Who may have? <laughs> okay, now all of you should have put your hands up. I don't really need any more categories for that. Okay? Tell me if this doesn't land with you. I heard this this morning, by the way. This happens in our house all the time. Say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You ever heard that before? You ever done that before? You have a fight even with your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm totally sorry. Well, why do you even say it like that? You know, and, and even this morning, something happened. One of the girls grabbed the iPad and... and uh, potentially had messed something up, and the other sister goes, Say your sorry to your dad! It's like, come on, say sorry! Now, 
She could say sorry, but there's something, does that mean that she actually had a change of heart? Most likely not. The majority of times that we actually say, um, I'm sorry, uh, we haven't really had a change of heart yet. And that's why I think this idea of repentance doesn't quite land with us because um, re- repentance is really something changes in us. And I, as I've taught on this kind of in my life, what's been most helpful for me is saying, I think true repentance always involves a plan. This, this, I've noticed this happen in, in so many people's lives. Well, I, I repented of my sin. I said I'm sorry, but I, I really, I, I found myself sinning again in the same way. I found myself kind of stuck in the same old sin again very, very quickly. And part of me wants to ask, did you make a plan when you said you were sorry? Because I think true repentance doesn't just say I'm sorry. It doesn't just say I'm going the wrong direction. Repentance says I was going the wrong direction. That's I'm sorry. I want to go the right direction. I'm moving this way. This is why I say that this, this idea of repentance, I want you to think of it more of a, of a lifestyle rather than just like a one act. This is why in the, what happened in, in about the 1600s is that and this again, this is no knock against the Catholic Church, but, but what was happening at the time in the Catholic Church was that, that confession of sin was kind of enough. And so as long as you confess your sin openly and audibly, you didn't really have to do anything else. You just had to say, I'm sorry, and you could just keep on doing it. And we kind of still make jokes about this. If you hear some comedians, you, I, I've heard a comedian say, I'm Catholic, which means I say sorry once a week and then I go back and do the same sins all week again. That was what a comedian said about his faith. And Martin Luther, who said, there's something wrong about this. This seems awful cheap. This seems like you're not really sorry. I mean, you can tell this in young children, right? You can, they, they don't hide this stuff. At all. We as adults, we totally hide. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, we're, that's, that's adults. Kids are like, I'm sorry. And it's clear. You're, you're not sorry. You just want to get your forgiveness, get on with your life, get, you know, get that thing back, whatever it is that was broken because of, you know, because of your sin or because of your disobedience. And Martin Luther, when he preached, he said, all of life is repentance. That was the first thing he said. The first thing. He, he had a list of 95 problems that he had. Like, I mean, this guy was, he had some serious courage. Right? He's going against an entire, you know, theological culture. And so when he fought against that, he had 95, they call it 95 Thesis. I'm not sure exactly why, but 95 problems that he had with what was going on, with the way the Catholic Church was thinking about it. And he, he nailed them to the door. And the first thing on that list was, all of life is, is repentance. That's the first thing he said. All of life is repentance. Because he understood that repentance is really not just asking for forgiveness, but there's, there's, there's kind of a whole lifestyle involved. And yet, repentance is something that, that really happens before anything else really spiritual happens. If you take a careful look at what happens in revivals, 
Did you know that most revivals, if not all revivals, start with prayer meetings of repentant prayer? That's how most revivals start. So again, we want to see this the, the gospel go forward in our city. We want to see our city love Jesus and become a great city. I think the first thing we have to pay attention to is that this always comes at the beginning of any great work of God. This is actually how Jesus started his ministry. He goes, he, really, when the Bible begins to go through, uh, like Jesus' birth and then Jesus' early life and, and then it gets to Jesus' actual ministry, do you, did you know that one of the first words out of his mouth is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. That was the first thing Jesus said. This is exactly what John the Baptist says. He says to his people, I'm preparing a way for the Lord. What does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But here's an interesting story about John the Baptist. We find it in Luke chapter 3. So, uh, John the Baptist is really the the predecessor for Jesus. He's really like the... uh, the opening band for the, the main band. And John the Baptist, he's kind of a, a weird guy. He's got a weird diet and he wears some weird clothes. I mean, you think hipsters wear weird clothes. John the Baptist, is he kills hipsters like crazy. And he eats weird things. And so John the Baptist is out in the desert wearing camel hair. Like who voluntarily wears the itchiest possible wool of all time and eats grasshoppers. I mean, that only happens on fear factor, right? So this is John the Baptist, and he's got a weird diet, he's got weird clothes, and this is what he preaches. But he doesn't have a weird message, he has the right message. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And a bunch of people start coming out, because, I mean, everyone kind of wants to see this John the Baptist. This is this guy for real. I mean, is this guy for real? And you know what he says? A bunch of people start coming out to him, and most people, I mean, if he's kind of thinks like a church planter, you think, like, people are coming out to hear me? I'm successful. I better make sure I watch what I say so that these people coming out. And you know what John the Baptist says? He says, I know why you guys are here. You're here so that you can cover all your bases. You think you can repent because it's like, if I don't, well, maybe this is right, or maybe this is right. And so you just, you're covering all your bases. So this is what he said. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized in, you brood of vipers. He's like, you den of snakes. Doesn't sound like an encouraging word for people. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says, you know why he says this? Because of his next statement in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. There's fruit to repentance. There's something else that happens beside you saying, I'm sorry. And when we call people to, to repent, we're not just calling you to say, I'm sorry for what I have done, Jesus, and uh, hopefully next week you'll cover my sin again. Ultimately, that isn't what repentance is. Repentance has fruit. Repentance is, I am sorry, Jesus. I want to change. How do I change? Please give me the power from your spirit, not just to be forgiven, 
but to make a change in my life. I don't want to do this again. There are activities that you get to do as a result of you asking for forgiveness. Well, first of all, you have to believe that you're actually a sinner. This is still a big hang-up in our culture. I mean, we, we, we still believe people are generally innocent until proven guilty. I'm like, have you raised children? There's no way they're innocent. I love my girls so much. Don't, don't get me wrong. I love them. They are wonderful. I can't stop kissing their heads. I can't stop hugging them. They're not pure, innocent children. I mean, there's some really deviant behavior behind a lot of it. There's some sneaky behavior. We had some issues recently. It's like my daughter just bold-faced, straight-up lied to me with her eyes open and not cracking a smile or a smirk on her face. I mean, that's kind of inbred in her right from the very beginning. And she needs the gospel right from the smallest possible age. And John, John the Baptist says, you can't just say I'm sorry. You have to make a change. Something has to happen inside of you. There is fruit to your repentance. I mean, this is kind of the, the, the first point for everything. This prevents kind of this idea of cheap grace, that, that the grace of God, the grace of Jesus, does not just mop up your mess, but it helps you not to make a mess again. You know, you can't really grow in forgiveness, by the way. Did you know that? You can't grow, you can't get more forgiven by God. Like if you sin and you ask, God, will you forgive me? He can't go, well, I'll, I'll forgive you in phases. And you'll get a certain amount of forgiveness today. And if you ask again tomorrow, you'll get double. That's not how God works. That's why the gospel is good news. You get all the forgiveness you need when you say, I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. I have disobeyed you. What is sin? Well, I think, again, we narrow sin down to sin is just this idea of, of anything that God says we shouldn't do, we don't do. But the problem with that is there's always the loophole person in the group who says, yeah, but what about this? This isn't technically a sin. The Bible doesn't actually say that. And I would widen this version of sin to say, not only is it, I think, a part like my little girls, is it a part of kind of the way of thinking that, that you just take on as you grow up? But I also think, like, sin is any time you don't do what God has asked you to do, wow. Sin is not listening to God and asking Him what to do. Because the truth is, when you believe in Jesus Christ and you become a Christian, what you are saying is, Jesus, you own my life. You own my mission. You get to decide what I do and what I don't do. And if He says, you should do this, and you say, I don't want to do that, that's sin. That's why it can actually be sin for someone and not for someone else. It's because it's, it's not right or wrong in terms of a, a moral sense, and the Bible says this, but because God asks you to do this and you won't do it. That's just as sinful as you doing something that God asks you not to do. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear. The Ten Commandments lay it out. You ever tried to obey all Ten Commandments all the time? You'll never do it. 
I don't even think we were designed to do it. I do think we were designed to try, but the Ten Commandments are there to say, see, you can't really do it. Now listen to me. You need a Savior. And so the law, the Ten Commandments, actually point us to Jesus rather than pull us away from Jesus. And repentance is simply saying, Jesus, I can't do this. I can't obey of my own power. I can't, I can't follow these. To the, Can you help me? I want to make changes. But I, I, know, I know that perpetual sin just leaves me cold. And, and, and my, my life with you is just spent in this forgiveness. I often talk about this with my own children. They say, well, you know, I'm sorry, Dad. I don't want to do this again. And we talk about discipline and we talk about their disobedience and I tell them why I don't want them to do it again and I say to them I love you just as much as before you disobeyed me I love you just as much now as before you disobeyed me I said but do you want a relationship where all I do is discipline you is that what you want do you want to constantly be in disobedience to me so that we don't even have a good time together. I'm just trying to discipline you. I'm just trying to catch up. I mean, none of us really want... That's not really much of a relationship, is it? If that's all the relationship we have with our children, if you ever have teenagers, I don't have teenagers yet, but I can imagine that like some people just spend most of their time with their teenagers just trying to discipline them. And they will be able to say from experience, there's not much relationship there. I think that's the way it works with God, too. And it's motivation to say, Jesus, I want to change. I don't want to be living in sin. I don't want to do this again. I want to make a change. Help me make a change. And so this is kind of this rhythm of repentance. We're going to talk a lot about this and then move on to a a number of other things. I think we have a change of heart. I think you, you literally need to be convicted about something. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit was given by Jesus to do that to us, to convict us and to say, you're in the wrong here. Not not in a way that condemns. In fact, the Bible actually says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's conviction. Condemnation comes from Satan. So if you hear things like, you're dirty, you don't deserve God, God could never forgive you, God can never forgive this sin. God can never... That is not from God. That is not conviction. That's condemnation from basically the serpent. Look in Genesis 3. It's like he whispers that again and again in our ears. But the Holy Spirit says, look, you're in the wrong here. And this kind of life is not the life that I wanted for you. Confess your sin to me. And I'll help you make a change. So number one... You have a change of heart. Number two, you ask for forgiveness for your sin. You believe that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Number three, you you make decisions to do things differently. You start to make plans. You begin to say, and then here's where it gets real practical, depending on the type of sin that you feel like you're caught in. Let's just say you're caught in the sin of lust. Well, where often do you find yourself sinning? In front of the computer, in front of the television, in a certain place at work, in a certain bar or pub in the city. You need to start making decisions to say, until I can begin to 
you know, fight that temptation, maybe I'll take a season of not going those places at those times and doing those things. You've got to make some plans. You've got to say, Jesus, I don't want to do this, so teach me and show me what I need. And some of you know right away. You know what you need to do. Some of you know. I've got to turn that TV off at about 11 o'clock because nothing really good comes on for me after then. You've got to get some help and some accountability with your computer because you're looking at things you shouldn't look at. And are not helpful to anything. Some of you struggle with images of, um, actually, literally, you struggle with image. And you are caught up in this sin of, of believing the lies of what, you, what and who you should be. Although Jesus says, you are my child, I have given you everything you need, you always feel like you need more. You need certain clothes to make yourself feel better. You need to be around certain people. And your image is what kind of, it's, it's what drives you. It's what you care about most. You need to take a careful inventory in your life and realize, where, who am I spending the majority of my time with? Some of you got to turn off that same TV. I'm just amazed when I look at TV of what kind of images are portrayed for both men and women today. I mean, they're just absolutely unrealistic. And they're nowhere near what Jesus thinks of us. And yet, we cater to that and we're caught in that. Repentance means you've got to start choosing. You've got to start making a plan not to believe those lies about your, your image. Some of you struggle with gluttony. Some of you, it's, it's more obvious than others. Gluttony is just the overabundance of things, not just food. Overindulgences. And so God has given you some things, you know, to enjoy, but you've taken them and that's all you enjoy and, and you, you crowd out God because of that. Like God gave us technology, by the way. But some of us spend all of our time on computers to the point where it's starting to infringe on our relationships. And you know that God's telling you not to and God does not design, He wants you to live in community, but you're so addicted to your technology, your phone, your iPad, your television, your computer, that it's crowding out what God has designed. You've got to start making a plan at how you're going to deal with that. You can't just say, I'm sorry, and expect that it goes away. You make a plan. You say, Jesus, I don't want this to be in my life anymore. I'm understanding how this damages what you have asked me to do. Some of you work too much because your idol is the money or the things or the materialism. And you actually make all of your choices in life around your work. Every single one of them. And it is your God. It tells you when to wake up. It tells you when to go to bed. It tells you what organizations you're involved in. It tells you what you can be involved in church. It tells you how much money you give to your church. It tells you how much you serve in your church. Friends, that's not work. That's a God. That's Jesus' rightful place. But if you just expect that you can say, Jesus, I'm sorry for that today, and expect that it all goes away tomorrow, friends, you're totally wrong. Repentance involves not just a change of heart, not just asking for forgiveness, but a plan.
And then step four is, is following through on our plan by the power of the Holy Spirit, because it's terrifying work. It's terrifying work having to say no to temptation when everyone in your culture says yes. Have you ever noticed how we're actually encouraged in some ways to sin? Like we hear things in, in, in culture and in advertisement that said you deserve this, you need this, when you clearly don't need this. You ever notice that? How it's almost become so subtle that the, the, what, what we used to just receive as kind of a gift is now just like a necessity and a right and a need. And we can't live without this anymore. And we shouldn't live without this anymore. And even when we say we're addicted, it's not even our fault anymore. It's got a disease, can't do anything about it. It's wrong. That's false. And you need the courage to ask for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, this is tough. I'm going to have to make some changes in my marriage, in my dating relationship. I'm going to have to make some changes in my checkbook. I'm going to have to make some changes in my work life. I'm going to have to make some changes with my house. I'm going to have to make some changes here. And I don't know how to do this, and I don't know how this will turn out. And Jesus, if you can just give me your Holy Spirit, because if I don't have it, I will fall flat on my face. Friends, that's a step you need to take. Step number six is repeat steps one through five, one through six. This is how your life begins to be a whole life of repentance. And we'll do this often here. We'll call you back to this. We'll call you back to the standard. Not so that you feel bad about yourselves, but that so you recognize that Jesus actually is in charge whether you believe it or not. We actually believe that here. We believe that Jesus is in charge of our life and gets to do with you regardless of what you believe. I know that sounds super arrogant if you're brand new. But that's actually what the Bible says. And Jesus is so kind and so gracious that he actually doesn't whack you over the head with a two-by-four and leave you on the ground and says, get up when you're good and ready. He actually gently draws you closer. Some of you have had this experience as Christians. You've just felt the draw of God. There's something about God that's attractive to me. There's something about, I don't understand the gospel yet, but there's something attractive about the gospel. And you don't make a decision about Jesus right away, but over time you just, you just become more and more convinced. That's Jesus tenderly, although he has the power to change you instantly, changes you gradually so it's not so hard on you. Isn't that awesome about Jesus? Isn't that an amazing thing? It's the first thing Nehemiah says. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. And so we're going to quickly go through the rest of what I'm seeing there in terms of this repentance and this prayer life, that Nehemiah's prayer life. First of all, he repents before he acts. So he understands this, this precedes activity. Who's a, who's a beer and who's a doer? All the beers in, in the house? Not, no beers? How many doers in the house? 
You just you, you can't hardly take information. You just want to get up there and do something with it right away. Right? I think Nehemiah is this kind of guy, and he, he shows us someone who actually says, I need to be repentant before I do anything as a result of my repentance. This is tough for those of us who are doers. Because what we want to do is we want to, we want to be like my small children and say, fine, I'm sorry, let's get on with it, God. And sometimes I think just that time of being repentant allows us to process some things that are really necessary. You don't need to stay there for forever. In fact, you should not stay there forever. But I noticed this about Nehemiah. It's actually, it's, it says, um, basically, in the, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Araxerxes or whatever his name, King A, um, chapter 2, verse 1. It's about three or four months from that time. So before we hear of any activity of Nehemiah, he's been praying and repenting, right? He's been praying and repenting. And he's fasting. And he's withdrawing. Um, fasting is a new concept for some of you. Who This is kind of like this is part of repentance. Anyone ever fasted before? Nobody's hand goes up. A few. Okay. Yeah. Why is fasting so hard? And what is fasting? Fasting is abstaining from food for a season. Why is fasting hard? Because we like to eat. That's why. Anyone not like to eat? Well, some of us actually not like to eat, so I shouldn't say that. But for the most part, fasting is difficult because it's saying no to something that really we kind of need eventually. But here's the amazing thing about fasting for them that wasn't really there for us. Nehemiah fasts and he prays. But for this culture, fasting was a very social thing. Right? So they, don't, they didn't do what we did. They didn't have fast food, by the way. Right? Some of us think fasting, well, as long as I just go, don't go to McDonald's and I'll just, you know, I'll kind of get some orange juice or a drink or whatever, um, Powerade, and I'll get all my nutrients that way. That, that kind of misses the point. Fasting was about a two or three hour thing that happened in the evening for these people. That's kind of what they did with their evenings. So to fast for someone like that meant to withdraw socially from the group for a season. I think this is really key here for us because we're not, this is not something you do just to kind of get God on your side. This is something you, you do willingly so that you can take time to concentrate on what God is really asking you to do. Because lots of times it takes time to sort out what God is really saying to you. Because you've got to clear out all the cobwebs of the other voices in life that are talking to you, right? <laughs> so there's lots of things that you probably hear throughout your day that you're like, well, that's actually not true. That seemed to be a clear voice. I mean, this happens to me sometimes when I purchase something. There's a real clear voice when I get into Walmart like, man, you need this. I hear that voice loud and clear. You could use this. You totally need a fourth coffee maker. And then I get home and I'm like, that voice is absolutely gone. I'm looking at what voice was I listening to, right? You've got all those voices in your head. And so what fasting does is just kind of help you process and clear these things out. And it's withdrawing. It's literally withdrawing from kind of regular social life. For some of you, I don't think fasting from food would, would be a real big sacrifice, but fasting from your phone and the Internet would. Fasting from television, fasting from a hobby, 
fasting from something that, that for you is social or for you that is key. Why would you do that? Because it would help remind you very quickly of why you're doing what you're doing. If you were on your phone all the time, every day, and you fasted from your phone for one day, I'm pretty sure you would be reminded to pray almost every point in the day. Every time you would hear like the Twitter sound or new mail sound, you'd be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm withdrawing. Jesus, I, I want to hear your voice. And so this is what fasting does. Fasting is not for God, it's for you. Fasting is a way that God tells you, and this is what Nehemiah does in his repentance, in his plan. He says, I'm going to fast. I'm going to take some time to hear from the Lord. Thirdly, Nehemiah repents of sins of omission and commission. We talked about this. Sins of commission are things we commit. That's where the root word for commit comes. Commission, right? Root words like, I committed a sin against God. I disobeyed Him. I did something that He told me not to do. Sins of omission are, I didn't do what God asked me to do. He said to love my brother and my sister, and I didn't do that. And so this is exactly what Nehemiah says. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and rules that you commanded your servant Moses. We haven't paid attention to them. We haven't just not done what you've asked us not to do. We haven't done what you've asked us to do. You've called us to rebuild this city and we're just scared and so we don't try because there's a little opposition from a few people and the man says i'm sorry this has got to change it's not just i'm not pointing the finger he's like this is my problem too that's the next point is that Nehemiah's prayer is personal, but it's not individual. So Nehemiah prays like he's in a family, not just by himself. I think this is really key for us to get. And we live in a culture that doesn't really like the idea of confessing sin on behalf of other people. I don't know, in your personal prayer time, have you ever found yourself confessing other people's sins? Like, oh man, I'm really sorry about my brother's sin or my sister's sin or my father's sin or my husband's sin or my wife's sin. No, we don't really do that very often, do we? In fact, usually what we do is we're like, I'm covered. Don't know about those suckers, but I sure am forgiven. Seriously. Check your own attitude on this. How often do you feel bad that there are other sinners who have unconfessed sin or are struggling in, in even this body that you love? And so often we come in and all we worry about is us. And yet we find that God does both. He does deal with us as individuals, but He also deals with cities and people and churches as groups. And sometimes I think what happens to one church is not a result of that church's sin, but as a result of all the church's sin. And God says, you know, you're all in this together. You know, if one In a family, if one kid or one adult makes a mistake, really the whole family kind of suffers, right? If you're a dad and you make a mistake in navigation, it never happens, by the way. This is hypothetical. But let's just say the dad's driving. Let's just say the dad doesn't ask for directions like he should. And let's just say he gets lost. Who pays the price for all of this? The whole rest of the family. This is not just dad's sin. He's not like, well, I'm sorry. He's like, this is something that the whole family now has to deal with. 
I felt for a long time that we've been praying for people just to come to know Jesus. And, you know, the more I get to know the gospel, the the more I'm like, Jesus, why? Why in the world aren't more people knowing about this? It's not that we don't have a lack of knowledge. It's, It's like, why isn't this important to other churches? And one of my convictions is that in Calgary in particular, I, don't, I can't speak for other cities, but it seems like the churches don't really want to work together for the most part. I'm not talking about churches that don't really, you know, that Jesus isn't really central. Jesus is important. In fact, Jesus is kind of really offensive, so they keep him to the side. You know, if, if you can see how we would have a hard time uniting in everything with that. Not because we hate those people at all or hate those churches. We just say, well, we're, we're probably just going to disagree at the very base level, so it's going to be difficult maybe to serve in certain ways together or do services together or that kind of thing. So I'm not talking about, you don't have to uniformity, but I'm saying like the churches that believe in Jesus and believe that the gospel is good news, I've wondered for a long time, has Jesus withheld some of his blessing on this city because we just flat out don't want to work together? that we seem to be more concerned about building up our own church and thinking of ourselves as kind of individuals and as individual churches that are separate and not as a family or not as a family of churches. I remember very, very clearly in, in my ministry, I was talking to someone and we are having some discussions about, you know, someone had approached me about perhaps serving in another church and I just kind of relayed this to my friend. I, I didn't actually take the position or anything like that, but I, I talked to, um, I talked to kind of my, my supervisor or someone who was kind of over me in the, in the church. And, and, uh, he literally said to me, Oh yeah, you've been talking to the competition, hey? Didn't bother me like it bothers me now. Something about that was deeply wrong. The competition. I mean, that's fine if we got to focus in on our work and we're called to a certain work. And, you know, I mean, he may have even said it jokingly, but it's like competition. Wait a second here. We're on the same team. To me, that would be like the defensive coordinator of a football team talking to the offensive coordinator of the football team and the head coach going, you're talking to the competition. No, we're not. We're talking to two different divisions, certainly, but we're not talking about competition. We're talking, we're teammates. That's kind of a, a no-brainer. And I just wonder, like this is Nehemiah. He's like, you have sinned, I have sinned, we have sinned. He does not separate himself. He does not make it just individual. He does not make it them. In fact, that's actually the next one. Nehemiah looks to change himself before others are changed. That's actually number six. So I'll jump there. And so, yes, he looks at himself and says, Jesus, how do you change me? God, how do you change me? But then he, he says, how do you change us? He does not, he takes responsibility for what he can take responsibility for, but he does not push it on other people. Some of us do this. When we pray, we pray for other people to be changed, but not us. Have you ever found yourself doing that? You're like, dear Jesus, please straighten their heart out. Please get a hold of their life and change them so that it works better for me. And Nehemiah doesn't do this. He doesn't pray that people align themselves with his mission. He says, no, no, align ourselves. I need to get aligned with your mission, Jesus. They need to get aligned with your mission. They need Jesus. We need Jesus. He didn't know that at the time, of course. 
But we know that that's ultimately what it was about. Nehemiah's, in verse 8, Nehemiah's repentance looks back before he looks forward. Some of our repentance is so difficult because we look forward all the time. And we don't look backwards at what God has done. Have you ever noticed that? Is there anyone who keeps a journal of any kind? Right? If you've ever kept a journal, what's, the, what's one of the huge advantages of keeping a journal? You look back on your life and see how you've grown, right? You know, for those of you who don't, I would challenge you, try it. It's really helpful. We, we, we're doing this thing even in our city groups. This is my little prayer book. Okay, in our city groups, what we're doing is we're writing down our prayer requests. You know one of the key reasons why we're doing that? is so that next year we can look back and go, wow, God, like we prayed about this and you answered this. And it's obvious you haven't answered this yet, so we've got to keep praying it. And wow, look at you've answered this. My goodness, you've answered this. You've answered some things about this that I, we didn't even pray. And I think looking back helps you to pray and repent. And I think it helps your prayer life like few other things. So Nehemiah looks back and he says, oh, look what you did with Moses. Look what you said you'd do. You said you would scatter people if they disobeyed you. And you know what? I see that. I experienced that. You scattered us. Then I said, look, if you obey us, you said you would gather us. And look, you're gathering us. God, you do what you say you do. And all he has to do is look back and go, Jesus, look at what you did with Moses and the people. Look at what you did with David and the people. Look at all that stuff. And those, those verses there, it said, um, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. That's about six or seven or eight different passages from Deuteronomy where, where Nehemiah looks back on a, a, t- a time, of, you know, a, quite a few years ago and says, look at what you did. Look what you did. And when you see what God did, you can see what He can do. And lastly, I think I'll end with this. Nehemiah is concerned with God's glory and not his own. The Nehemiah understands that God owns him. Nehemiah understands that this is not ultimately about him. This is about God and His glory. So many of our requests, so much of our repentance is is designed, so many of our plans are designed about making us better. God help my position at work. God help my family. God help me, 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 me. We have a plan that we want God to join in and hopefully bless that plan. That's what our prayer life consists of. That's what our repentance consists of. You say, God, I've got a great plan. Let me tell you all about it. Cool plan. Hey, God, don't you want to bless that? Aren't I awesome? Just ask me, I'll tell you. So much of our prayer life is often like this. Where it's like, God, I am the best thing that ever happened to you. And I've got an awesome plan for your life. And if you just give me a dose of your Holy Spirit, I will accomplish this. It's a huge temptation, I think, even in church planting and seeing what's going on here. We see people coming to know Jesus. We see people joining the mission. We, We just say to God, okay, God, it's very clear you've blessed us and you want to keep this going like this. And so, hey, just keep blessing. Keep doing what we want you to do. And this keeps us humble and says, Jesus, this is your deal. The Nehemiah's example is we must be much more concerned with what Jesus wants to do with the city than what we want to do for the city. 
We must be much more concerned with what Jesus wants to do with this city than even what he wants to do in our church because, friends, we did not move to Calgary to just plant a church. We wanted to be part of making a great city. And that might mean painful seasons for us and joyous seasons for others. And we, we ought to celebrate that and say, ultimately, this is not about whether Urban Grace is this great church. Although, do you want that? I do. I want to be part of a great church. I've never met anyone who was like, you know, I'm kind of looking for a mediocre church that does nothing and is not on mission and is a kind of a waste of time, to be honest. I've never met anyone like that. And so it's not wrong to want a great church, but it's wrong when that becomes much more important than what God wants to do with this city. And so it keeps us humble. It says, Jesus, you've got to change me, because right now all I can think about is what's in it for me. And I want to be about what's in it for you. It's changed my heart. Help me make a plan around this. And we'll get into this next week and we'll close with this. Nehemiah's prayer is humble but not morbid. So he's humble but he doesn't stay like paralyzed. For some of us, this idea of repentance just paralyzes us. And he says, oh, I guess I can't be a doer. I've got to be a beer. No, that's not true. But sometimes we need to be repentant so that we can do the work and the fruits of repentance. And so now I'll just call you. We have got this little thing that we do, it's not really a little thing, it's really the primary thing in which we do that really calls us to repentance. Just in the very act, in the symbolism with which we do it. So we've got two tables now because there's, there's enough people here that we need two tables. But they're still both ultimately about this idea of repentance because they symbolize Jesus' death. Well, you don't celebrate or remember Jesus' death unless it actually means something. And so when we ask you to participate in this thing we call the Lord's table, which is a gift given to us, what we're saying is, by taking this, you are admitting you are a sinner and you need a Savior. You are admitting, Jesus, I need help. Jesus, my mission is not in line with your mission, and I need you to realign my mission. And so this is an act to kind of start repentance, but we hope that it doesn't end there. And so our, uh, the way we celebrate it is we simply, the first person up in each line just breaks off the bread, which really symbolizes the broken body of Jesus Christ. Do you know how much Jesus cared about you being on mission for him? He died for it. He suffered a brutal death so that you could be saved and be brought onto mission. So you could have that all realigned. So the first person up just breaks that body. And in many ways, like, like symbolizing the broken body of Jesus Christ for us. And then the, the cup really symbolizes the shed blood. Jesus actually shed blood. The Old Testament sacrificial system said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so this is the starting point. The broken body of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus. This is the starting point of repentance, but it does not end there if it's true repentance. And so we ask you to come and be thankful. That's what you really should be. Did you know you can take communion with a smile on your face? That you don't need to come up feeling sick. You need to come up and say, I don't have to suffer in the same way that Jesus did because of what Jesus did. And you get to take that with joy. Some of you need to wipe that frown off your face and smile a bit as you take communion. Say, isn't Jesus good? That he does not penalize me for all of my sin, but instead chooses and beckons me to draw me to him. And then we sing together, yes, again, 
We're sorry about the technical difficulties, but maybe it's good for us and that we just hear the words rather than think about singing them. So all of them are really kind of key in us on, on this idea of Jesus being the sacrifice for us. And so I invite you to come and I invite you to celebrate. And I invite you to be thankful for what Jesus has done for you.